Well, good morning. Uh, good morning to you as well, all of you out online watching. I know you've been greeted a few times this morning, but I want to say hello. My name is uh, Grant Miller. I have the privilege of pastoring our college students here. And before you log off online, having expected to see Scott this morning, I want to say, don't worry, he'll be back next week. So uh, that's exciting. Uh, I'm sure we're in for a great sermon. He's had some time to prepare. Heard it has to do with numerology and the identity of the Antichrist. So it'll be a real humdinger. He's been walking around muttering to himself. It'll be really good. So expect that next week. We'll see you online. Well, uh, it really is exciting to be here with you this morning. And I had the opportunity to do the uh, Scott Daniels Sunday morning trek this morning. So driving out to Middleton and sharing with them there in a, in a morning of worship and uh, coming back. So excited to be here with you. I'd invite you to stand as you're able as we open up our scriptures to the gospel text for this week. It's the book of Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. Right then, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead to the other side of the lake while he dismissed the crowds. When he sent them away, he went up onto a mountain by himself to pray. Evening came, and he was alone. Meanwhile, the boat, fighting a strong headwind, was being battered by the waves and was already far away from land. Very early in the morning, he came to his disciples, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they were so frightened, they screamed. Just then, Jesus spoke to them, Be encouraged. It's me. Don't be afraid. Peter replied, Lord, if it's you, order me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. Then Peter got out of the boat and was walking on the water toward Jesus. But when Peter saw the strong wind, he became frightened. And as he began to sink, he shouted, Lord, rescue me. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him, saying, you man of weak faith, why did you begin to have doubts? When they got into the boat, the wind settled down. Then those in the boat worshipped Jesus and said, you must be God's son. This is the word of God for the people of God. You know, it's certainly, you may see that, sorry, thank you. It's, uh, it's certainly sobering this week. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about water and needing to have a healthy respect of water to have had this tragic accident happen uh, in the Northwest this week that Brent was just discussing. But um, with that in mind, I, I certainly uh, understand, have grown to understand what it means to need a healthy respect of water. I grew up not really maybe grasping that. Had several uh, opportunities to take swimming lessons growing up. Uh, I grew up in Vancouver, Washington, just really close to Richfield, the Richfield Church, and uh, was very comfortable in water. Uh, went to the beach a lot and played in the ocean and got thrown around by the waves, wasn't really worried about it. Went swimming, lots of, lots of great experiences on water, and didn't really grow up with a a hesitation or a respect for water, like some people around the country and the world do. You know, we don't really experience hurricanes here in this part of the country. Uh, severe flooding is not really a regular issue. And so I didn't really ever fully mentally grasp the, the sheer power of water until my first experience being truly uh, in need of some perspective, which involved me in water. Uh, it went like this. I was a, a senior in high school, and some friends of ours who operate a camp in central Washington had reached out to my folks and said, hey, if, if Grant and his sister, my sister Melissa, uh, want to come out and come to this whitewater camp we're putting on, we would love for them to come and help out uh, and be a part of it. And my sister and I were very excited about that. Uh, there's lots of tributaries that dump into the Columbia River in the, the southern central part of Washington on the Columbia River Gorge. And so we got to go and be part of this week-long whitewater camp, which involved rafting 
every day, various classes of rapids uh, in boats with a, a, a train of guides um, about six boats long. And on the fourth day of the trip, I found myself in a boat. We, we would mix up uh, crews or, or people in the boats every day. And I found myself in a boat with several younger high school age students uh, and was one of the stronger rowers, so I'd been kind of put into this boat to balance them out. But our rafting guide that day was having significant trouble getting everyone to pay attention and listen to his calls. If you've ever been on the river or whitewater rafting before, you know that it's extremely important to be paying attention to what your guide says. He'll call strokes forward, strokes back. Maybe one side does one thing, the other side does another. He'll say, dig in. You're trying to move quickly through a certain uh, part of the river, and that's because you're literally trying to dodge boulders in your way. Well, we were uh, progressing through a kind of a, a more relaxed part of the river, and the head guide in one of the boats was kind of passing the word from boat to boat, hey, there's a strainer in the river up ahead, so make sure you stay on the left around this large gravel bar in the middle, and don't go down the right fork where a strainer has fallen, which uh, you might be able to imagine given the term, but it's a anything really that's fallen in the river, but here it was a large, probably 60-foot tall, a tree that had crashed recently and still had all the branches sticking off and was not going to be easy to plow a rubber boat through. So as we got closer and closer, our guide, I think his name was maybe Casey, said, okay, all forward, all forward, all forward. And I uh, begin paddling very quickly, but even I, a novice at that point, and I'm still a novice, I don't know why I would have been a novice at that point, <laughs> realized uh, we're not going to make it. We're going down the wrong side, which was the the right side as opposed to the left. And we got caught in this current and got taken down this pretty quickly moving uh, section of the river. And at that point, our guide saw that the, the cause was lost and said, everybody into the middle of the boat right now. And so we all piled in on top of each other and really slammed into this tree. Um, branches sticking over our heads. And there were a few people in the boat, these younger high school students who were kind of nervous and maybe started crying. I was like, this is the coolest thing because I was and no idea what was going on. I was foolish. Uh, it, it, the situation got worse. Uh, water, obviously, will build pressure if there's something in its way. And so our boat slowly began to go, <coughs> wanting to go under the tree as opposed to over it, which was no longer a possibility. And our guide said, everybody step on the tree and jump on the other side. We'll figure it out from there. But it's way better to be floating downriver than caught under a tree, right? which we did, and, and we had practiced that whole week with all of the rafting paraphernalia that you use. So all the rest of the boats had pulled, up, pulled onto this gravel bar and were throwing their rope bags, which is a safety measure, and we were all pulling ourselves back in, and they all thought it was a lot of fun. But it was a really dangerous moment, and I realized in retrospect how dangerous it truly was. And that was the first time I really felt out of control in the face of the power of something like water. Now that's important, and I want you to maybe get there with me this morning, even if you haven't ever been caught in a strainer. Uh, on the river. There's something really deeply important about the psychological mind of the biblical Jewish person when it relates to a large body of water. If you've paid attention, you've heard Scott talk about this several times before. It's that tohu and bohu. I'm doing what he does too. Tohu and bohu. They wrestle together. These terms that are used in the book of Genesis to describe the chaos and the formlessness and the void that is present in those moments immediately after creation. Well, that's something that's fixed in the Jewish psyche, the, the idea that these large bodies of water represent the unknown, the void, chaos. We have no idea what might lurk before the surface or come out. 
In fact, it's what would now be called, if you are maybe familiar with this, thalassophobia. That's the fear, not of water itself, but of big, dark bodies of water. We have no idea what's out there underneath. You might have even felt that. I think there's an instinctive sort of thalassophobia for everybody. If maybe you've watched a video online of, of, a, of a sport fisherman out in the ocean, maybe pulling in something big, a tuna or something, and it's a massive fish, and then all of a sudden, suddenly, a much larger fish, a shark, takes it right off the line, and we go, oh no, there's so much that we don't know in the ocean. That's terrifying. It's partly because we're not made to exist in the ocean long term. So I'd say even despite the fact that disciples are fishermen by trade, it makes sense here that they're pretty nervous uh, in the middle of the night out on the Sea of Galilee. And in fact, it makes even more sense that they're on edge because they're drifting further and further from the shore. And the night is getting deeper and darker. The waves are getting higher and rougher. And this time, unlike just a few chapters before this, when the disciples are caught on a boat in the middle of a storm, Jesus isn't in the bow taking a nap for them to just wake up and calm the storm for them. Jesus is back on the shore. You know, last week, if you were here and were able to listen to Pastor Diane's message, uh, it sets an important point of context for us here. Jesus was seeking throughout chapter 14, has been looking for a time just to get away for a minute. <laughs> the news of his cousin and friend's really scandalous death and execution at the beginning of this chapter is something that he, by being in touch with himself and with the Father, recognizes he needs to find some space. But as we know, the crowds follow him, they feed them, and now seeing a chance to take some solitude, sends the disciples, Jesus sends the disciples out onto the lake and goes to take some time for himself. Jesus begins to walk out to the boat. And this is where, for me, my mental image of hearing this story most often, my mental uh, picture, uh, often takes me. And it's maybe a conception you might share. This is how I've always heard it explained. At least this is the takeaway I've taken from when I've heard this story numerous times in church and youth group and camps. It's like this. Peter sees Jesus. He gets out of the boat. He starts walking on the water. Amazing miracle. Look what can be done when you focus and trust the Lord. But... He doesn't have enough faith, everyone. Peter, once again, doesn't have enough faith to maintain this miraculous occurrence. He needs rescuing. Boo, Peter, boo. You have little faith, boo. You should have trusted Jesus more, boo. And the line is always, right? Peter took his eyes off Jesus, and as soon as he did, started sinking. And if you would only keep your eyes fixed on Jesus in the storms of life, you too could walk on water or insert particular need of the week here. And, and we begin to say, and you can trust the Lord and he'll deliver you. He walks on water. Just fix your eyes on Jesus. Yes. And then we end with this rip-roaring, huzzah, yes. And if you trust the Lord every day of your life, may his favor be upon you for a thousand generations. The blessing, blessings, right? And it's, we kind of tidy it up and say, just fix your eyes. Everything will turn out fine. You'll keep walking on the water. Now, I'm, I'm poking fun at that but not because it's, it's false. It, it absolutely, and I'll return to this point, that in the midst of the storms of life, we should fix our eyes on Jesus, and in doing so, can make it through whatever storms come our way. That's true, and absolutely, no need to make it more complicated than it needs to be. But, there's another piece here that I think we need to really reflect on, especially at a time such as this, that's especially relevant given where we are currently. And I know every preacher says that in every sermon, but I mean it. I really mean it right here. If you were to read Matthew from start to finish, 
Or maybe just take a chunk of the book, Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 19. You'd see Jesus often using a term that he uses here with Peter. You of little faith, or you of weak faith. And, and often Jesus uses that term or even spends time talking about the scope or size of faith. A few weeks ago, Brent talked about uh, the mustard seed, if you had only the faith of a mustard seed, right? There's an idea in the book of Matthew about the size of faith and how it relates to the work of God in our lives. The frequency, typically, with which Jesus uses this language is directly connected often to a response to people who generally don't take Jesus seriously or take him at his word. You know, whether it's directly questioning his actions or not understanding his teachings or maybe just forgetting something that he's already done or said. The disciples do that several times in the book of Matthew. So here comes Jesus striding across the waves in the middle of the night undeterred by the howling wind, coming right for the disciples. And I don't want us to miss the symbolism here because it sets the stage. Jesus isn't just taking a shortcut across the water real quick, using his miraculous divine power to save himself a few minutes. That's absolutely not what's happening here. Jesus is clearly taking the opportunity to demonstrate authority over the natural world by breaking the laws of physics, yes, but also authority over all of that psychological importance which the deep and dark waters occupy in the minds of the disciples. Nothing can stop Jesus. He's the master of physical wind and wave, but also takes captive every barrier in our minds that prevents us from seeing his authority, both physical and immaterial. That's a powerful image here as Jesus walks across the water, and one that I think would capture the disciples' attention immediately. In fact, it does. They scream, in fact, is how captured they are. It's an incredible moment, incredible moment. But what's the first exchange that takes place? Yes, they scream. <laughs> And Jesus says, do not be afraid. The word here is do not, or do not fail to have confidence or be bold, have boldness. It's me. Don't be afraid. Be encouraged. And what does Peter say back? If it's you, Lord, tell me to come out. I just want to ask this question here. I'm going to reframe the focus of this path. After Jesus pulls Peter out of the water, and Jesus says to him, you have little faith, why did you have doubt? Could it be not simply that Jesus is questioning Peter's faith in the midst of the waves and walking on water, but primarily is asking and talking about the doubt that prevented Peter from recognizing Jesus in the first place when he was standing in the boat? Look, there's nothing wrong with a healthy, doubting spirit to some extent. It's okay to ask questions. As long as we're seeking to understand the truth, get to the bottom of the matter, to clearly have a perception of the world around us. And that is really important, especially in this day and age, right? We live in a world, I, I recognize this, filled with people who give us ample reasons to put up walls and to distrust each other. I mean, even just simple things like major corporate marketing, right? It's turned us into little psychological algorithms. We're basically just trying to narrow down our profile and then bombarding us with links to get us to scratch the itch of that thing we want to buy because Alexa heard us talking about it or followed us around on the internet. We've got social media channels that pump out news with a spin to the point that we have fact-checking bots that flag fake news, but on top of that, we now need apparently fact-checkers to check the fact-checking bots to make sure they weren't made by somebody with a bias already, right? When someone tells me a story that they heard or read about, the first thing I say is not, oh, tell me more about that, it's, where did you hear that? What news channel? What website? Our bite-sized news world of photos and videos, sound clips, 
posts, 140 character tweets. They're beset and surrounded by filters and jump cuts, fake profiles, artificiality, to the point, frankly, our current generation, the one that I get to work with most often, high schoolers and college students, they literally hold everything they see on the internet as suspect because they've been trained to do it. And I don't, I don't blame them at all. But here, in this passage, I think it's really important to note that we're not talking about kind of a healthy sense of doubt. The word here that Jesus uses, why did you have doubt, refers, in fact, to a stance. It's something that looks a little like this. It's not a doubt that asks for clarification, but a doubt that is antagonistic in nature. It's more than a little feeling of insecurity, asking, is this, uh, is this rope really going to hold me when I go bungee jumping, right? It refers instead to a stance, an active stance, feet planted in skepticism. And I think we carry that mentality with us. In this world of ours that's beset by incredible storms, pick something in the news, watch it for five minutes, pick something. COVID, racial discord, election cycles. We also, I think, bring a mental framework, just like the disciples, maybe not a philosophobia, fear of anything that seemed might jump, us, jump at us out of the water, but certainly a deeply held skepticism of one another, our motives, our true identities. And in the whirlwind of noise and chaos, when Jesus arrives in authority, clearly already demonstrated, and says to us, be encouraged, have boldness, do not be afraid, it's me. We look at Jesus, and instead of saying, we're so happy you're here, prove it. That's the kind of active, aggressive, antagonistic skepticism that I think Jesus wants to question and call out in this moment. It's similar to the, 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 the occurrence with Thomas, right, who's called the doubter. The first thing that Thomas says to the disciples when they say, the resurrected Lord came and visited us here in this room, he doesn't say, wow, uh, you know, I trust you, I believe you, but I, I feel like maybe I have some questions, and I hope I get to see him too. I, I just, it's hard for me to accept. That's, you remember, right? That's not what he says. He says, what? Until I see the holes in his hands and put my hand in his side, I won't believe it. And that is okay, but we have to know that Jesus is going to be faithful to meet us there, right? Because Christ comes into that room and says, Thomas, see my hands, see my side. And when Peter says, if it's you, Jesus says, come on out, the water's fine. But here's the problem with that kind of mindset and living a life of the Christian one, two-step, doubt, faith, doubt, faith, prove it, prove it, prove it. But the more time we spend making Jesus jump through hoops to win our faith, the more time we spend crafting tests to prove to ourselves or to others that we can trust Jesus to truly do what he says. The more time we spend needing rescuing when we start to sink, instead of just staying in the boat and recognizing the wind and waves know who Christ is, he clearly has dominion over them, all of that time we spend doing those things is time we waste that could have been about kingdom work. In a world that right now is absolutely desperate, for strong followers of Christ to serve as the hands and feet of Jesus, especially in a time like this, as I said, with not only conversations around COVID, but racial reconciliation and human sexuality and human trafficking, and oh yeah, there's an election that's about to take place. It's really hard to serve the world when we're spending all our time and energy trying to keep our heads above water because we got out of the boat in the first place, asking Jesus to prove it. The more time spent 
having to convince and reconvince on any matter of kingdom work is the less time spent being able to actually be about it. The more time spent having to convince ourselves that the lives and voices of our black brothers and sisters matter is the less time spent actually being able to empower and uplift those voices, right? I'll give you an example from my workplace. The more time I have to spend convincing college students that substance abuse, like, like alcohol, is, is a slippery slope that can lead to some long-term damage in their lives, is the less time we get to spend actually being about the work of finding, seeking out, and helping to heal the addicts in our community. It's not that one is more important or worse than the other, but we absolutely have to recognize that we have an obligation to take Jesus at his word. Because ultimately what I think drives our desire to have Jesus prove it is a need for control. We want to place parameters around our interactions with God because we are then going to accept the proof that we have asked for in the first place and nothing else. <laughs> this week, uh, I was praying a lot about the upcoming semester uh, and about our students coming back. And I'm going to be really honest with you. I was not praying a very enlightened prayer. I was praying something like this. God, please be in the midst of the upcoming semester. Lord, we need you to miraculously touch the world in this situation in order for life to be back to normal. Lord, if we could just, I, I mean this, if we could, Lord, if there's somebody working on a vaccine out there, you could miraculously intervene with that process. And October 15th, that'd be great. Lord, October 15th would be amazing. I'm going to be really honest with you. That, that was my very, very grant-centric prayer. And I had a moment of breakthrough. But it did not sound like this. Brent, your faith, October 15th, done. <laughs> not how it went. It went like this. Grant, you're asking me to be in the midst of the coming months. But you're looking backward in time to define the ways in which you're expecting me to act in the future. Placing parameters around God's involvement ignores the fact that God is still the God in the unknown, the unforeseen, the unpredictable, the unprecedented, and God can and will do a new thing, no matter if we're, if we're paying attention or not. The question for me is, do I want to be defining the ways that I'm looking for God's intervention in the future by the ways that I know God has worked in the past, and saying, this is how I expect it, and I'm not going to see it if it doesn't show up that way. Because what ends up happening there is, if I'm not paying attention, it's going to take me a while to get on board with the new thing that God is doing. And we get been conditioned to have this expectation of noise and waves. But as our First Kings passage told us today, God doesn't show up in the form of a wave or a fire or a wind or an earthquake. He shows up in the ways that we least expect it, in a gentle whisper. And so I found myself just floored with reflection on this, as a conviction, really, from the Spirit. What if instead of praying for God's intervention this right now, in this season, in a way that I could recognize and define, I simply prayed to be able to recognize God's work when it occurs so that I can participate in it more fully? What if instead of asking God to prove love and faithfulness through the miraculous, the miraculous that I have decided it will be, or prayed for specifically, what if instead I simply prayed that God would move as God moves, and I'd be so wrapped up in God's presence that when I see redemption at work, I'm ready to jump in no matter the circumstance. And I think that also moves me to think about the ways that I interact with other people differently as well, not only the ways that I interact with God. 
Because what if instead of framing the world through a sense of skepticism, this mental framework that says I have to doubt the motives of every person I meet, doubt the sources of every piece of news I hear, I simply saw every moment as another chance to participate in God's prevenient grace, regardless of my personal outcome and stakes. You might say to me, Grant, that's very noble, but very stupid. The world is full of people who will take advantage of you in that sense. It's a huge mistake to trust like that. It will come back to burn you. Yeah, that's true. But honestly, if I'm truly committed to a religious credo, to a Savior who says, take up your cross and follow me, I think that's kind of part of the deal. I think I need to recognize that's kind of what I signed up for. Because as much as skepticism and doubt of our brothers and sisters in the world is simply, in many times, just a tool of self-preservation to ensure my own survival, all the more in the face of that sentiment do other words of Jesus ring true. Jesus, who is called, by the way, the wounded healer, not the perfect physician. He says elsewhere in Matthew, all who want to come after me must say no to themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And all who want to save their lives will lose them. And all who lose their lives because of me will find them. I'm going to invite the music team to come back up and close with this thought. As much as Jesus talks about faith in the book of Matthew, he also spends considerable time talking in, of trying to not do miracles all over the place. It's a big theme that runs through the book of Matthew. And there are several places where folks ask him for something, ask him for a miracle or a sign. And Jesus responds more than once with something to this effect. It's a wicked or evil and adulterous generation that asks for a sign. Now, I don't think that that's a charge that we should not pray and believe for miraculous intervention on God's, on God's part, on our behalf. But what I do think it means, and the reason that Jesus uses this word adulterous, which is very specific, is that when we commit to having our litmus test for God's activity be a sign or an intervention or a walking on water and not simply taking his word for it, it becomes very easy to become unmoored sailing around looking for the next miraculous occurrence. What Jesus longs for us to do is not to be seeking signs, but to moor and fix ourselves firmly on his presence in person. To trust that we can stand on Christ the solid rock. And to know that in the midst of all things, God is faithful to work in ways that we might expect and have prayed for, but also often in ways that we would never know to see unless we were so intent upon seeking his presence in our lives that we could not miss it. And that is where I think Jesus charges Peter to change his mindset, and that's where I hope that this passage this morning can lead us. Let's sing together.